1: a former student just read my book. And she said, it's so important that the book came after the friendship, not the other way around. You're right. You're right. Yeah. This book didn't come out until many years later, I didn't yeah. go into this. And a lot of people go into experiences with the idea of writing a book. That's what a lot a of people. Do. It's all material. And that's not always bad. But I think it would have been exploitive if I'd gone into this. Yeah. With the idea. Or you know even even five years ago, like, Oh, wow. Maybe he'll ask me to, you know, yeah. witness his execution, which he did. I, yeah. I didn't for complicated reasons, but, you know, then you're after the writing experience rather than being a friend.
2: Good day. Good people. My name is Brad King and you are listening to the downtown writers jam podcast. Today you're listening to jam sessions, which is our new nonfiction program, short form bite-sized, As you know, if you listen, we are part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. If you don't know, uh, we are part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. This is a heavy show today. Part of the reason I wanted to do jam sessions was because our program, Downtown Writers Jam, which I love, doesn't really lend itself to having deep discussions about individual topics. And so many of the authors that I'm interested in do these nonfiction deep dives. And this is one of those. So we are coming to you from deep inside the Jam Bunker today with Leith, uh, Lisa Knopp. Her book, From Your Friend Carrie Dean, is uh, tough, man. It's a tough, it's a tough one. Uh, this is about a 23-year friendship. This um, woman, Lisa, who is a death penalty activist. Um, it's a 23-year friendship she had with a guy, Carrie Dean, who was on death row and was eventually executed. And they exchanged letters. And as you're going to hear, the book covers a lot of topics, prison, uh, religion, redemption. Touches on all of the, you know, if this guy murdered two people. Touches on that, sort of all of the things that go into it. And it was a really This was exactly the kind of conversation that I envisioned in my head when we put together this show. Now, Lisa is a professor of English at the University of Nebraska Omaha. Um, She teaches creative nonfiction. She has had uh, essays in a ton of journals. I could list them all. Uh, I will not, but they're big ones. Iowa Review, Creative Nonfiction, Prairie Schooner, Georgia Review—like that's just a few. Like. So she's this is her gig, man, and uh, we just got done with the conversation, and I'm a little bit flustered, uh, because this is a topic that I uh, am sort of tangentially related to, right? Like, I have lots of friends that do this kind of work. My graduate mentor works uh, helps run the San Quentin newspaper. Uh, my friend Katie used to run Truth Be Told, which is a women's prison writing program, I'm friends with Larry Smith. You've heard him on the program. His wife, is Piper, Orange is the New Black. So I have been circling around this from a written side for a long time. I just finished Corrections in Inc. We're going to have Carrie on the show. It's a prison memoir. So this is, this is a hard show. Like, it's a hard conversation, but it's a good conversation. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy is the wrong word, but it's a conversation you need to hear. So I'm excited to be in the bunker today doing that. Before we get to it, real quick, uh, you know we do the Jam every Wednesday. That's our hour-long show, Jam Sessions in the After Party. Both of those come out on Mondays and Fridays. They all come out on this channel. Need you to leave us a review. Apple Podcast, over at Facebook under the Review tab on our Writer's Jam page. Tell your friends about us. Man, that's the easiest way to help us spread the word. Our website's got all kind of goodness. Got the book reviews. We have the bookshop link where you can buy books, the monthly newsletter, the Apple podcast subscription for all 12 of the solid Listen programs. And you can join our Patreon for like a dollar or five bucks a month. Commercial free episodes, happy hours, bonus content. Uh, Nicole and Miles are cranking stuff out all the time. You don't want to miss any of that. But what we're doing right now is I think... One of the reasons I love doing this show because we get to have conversations about topics that just don't take up a lot of headspace on our day to day lives. But when they cross, like when you see something in the newspaper, you're like, oh shit, like that's really an important thing. And then, you know, a million other important things happen. So I'm super excited that uh, I get to sit down and do this. And I'm very happy that you have taken some time to stop by the bunker and spend time with us for this topic. And now. Please sit back and give all of your attention to Lisa Knopp.
1: Carrie Dean and I were, Carrie Dean Moore and I were friends for 23 years. And I met him as a death penalty abolitionist visiting death row. And I had no intention of becoming friends with somebody on death row. I certainly didn't need a pen pal, um, but he needed help finding a new pastor. His pastor was very old and just needed to retire. And in the process of helping him find some people from my own church who could visit regularly, um, he and I sent many letters to each other and I was in, you know, I liked him and how do you, how do you stop something like this? So,
2: um, when you say like this, what do you mean?
1: Um, Well, getting to know each other through the letters and because I was moving out of state at that point, but because I had found three people in my church who could visit him, um, I couldn't find a pastor, but um, I found who could come every week, but I found a group of people who could rotate. And so we had people in common and I just liked the guy. And it wasn't like I could say, well, I've done what you asked me to. So nice knowing you. Um, so it continued 320 letters and many visits and phone calls and, um, probably one of the most important friendships in my life. I did not think about writing a book about this, though. I wanted him to, he was a pretty prolific letter writer and I really said at times, you know, I think you should write a book about your life, just how radically you have changed. And, and, you know, nobody would be interested in me. Um, he was a pretty humble guy. But um, the summer of 2018, he had his eighth um, execution date. Seven of them had been stayed and I knew him for five of those. And He wasn't going to fight it. He had refused to fight some of those. And some of those dates he had fought. But I knew he wouldn't fight this one. And it just seemed that chances were good that this time he would be executed. So about three months before his execution, I again encouraged him to write a book. And he said no. And and I was ready. I said, well, why don't we write a book together? You be a co-author. And, and he said, no, I don't want to do that. But he said, I will give you any help you want in writing this. And so that's um, where the friendship came from. And then that's where the idea for the book came from. It was really toward the end of his life that I decided he's not writing the book. And this is a story that really needs to be told. And so I'm just going to do it.
2: So I got two questions because... Yes. I mean, I have more than two questions, but the two that come out of that are, I think it would be, I've had a rough and tumble life. So I have friends that have been in prison, right? And it's, I think if you don't, if you don't have those kinds of people in your life, it's very easy to write for, you see people write people like that off all the time, right? The thing that you've done makes you irredeemable, makes you unlovable, whatever. We're going to just put you there. Did you struggle? Because this is somebody that had killed people, right? And that, or was convicted for killing people did you have that moment of like should I really be doing this um actually no
1: because when I met him he was such a changed person he had already been on death row probably I don't know about 15 years um he had been profoundly changed by his faith in God and God's promises and um I couldn't believe he had committed murder and when i met him that was one of the first things he told me i i killed two people and i confess to it i'm guilty and i've been forgiven
2: so when you say you couldn't believe it you don't mean you don't think he did it you mean it was, i just like as this a person you're like he doesn't feel like person
1: yeah. yeah um yeah yeah he was he was um so self-reflective um so um humble and self-effacing and very generous to other people. And, um, and I'm not the only person who said, you just don't seem like a murderer to me.
2: Sure.
1: Um, I did read in the paper every once in a while, a story would bubble up where I, I knew the faces of the people he had killed. And um, I, I just couldn't connect and then um, that last summer of his life, I said, I have to write about the murders. You have to tell me about them. And he said, I'll tell you what I remember. And we mostly did that through letters. Yeah. I would write a question and, and he would write his answer. And um, I preferred doing it that way rather than talking in person. Um, it was a little uncomfortable because I think it was uncomfortable for him. He never, he always talked about the murders, but he didn't ever tell me how they had happened or why. Yeah. And that's, that's the uncomfortable part. Yeah. And I wanted to go more with what he said than from the newspaper and from trial transcripts. Um, but we didn't finish it. You know, he was executed August 18th and I, there was so much I still needed from him. Yeah. Um, so I did read, I did rely on some newspaper reports and I read, he had a half brother. He took along to one of the, what the half brother, the 14 year old half brother thought was going to be a robbery and was actually ended up killing somebody. And I did read his transcripts, but I never read Carrie Dean's. Um, and so i pieced the murders together as well as i could and he told me as much as he could and and i when he died i knew there was more
2: sure but, i mean how could there not be right like yeah I, and so I, gotta, I mean i don't you know, i don't want to excuse those things but and i i don't know if you touch on this in the book but i I'm sort of one of those people that believe in 100 years or 200 years, we're going to look back on the way we incarcerate people and the ways in which we don't deal with addiction and and true mental health, not the mental health stuff that you hear, you know, sort of bandied about, but the actual traumas that shape people that do those things. Because I have to think what I've read about killing. Unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath, which is a small, tiny percentage of the population, that is not a thing that people just do when they're healthy and right. That's right. So I have to think if he's not one of those people, which it sounds like he was not one of those small percentages, that reliving that is sort of untreated trauma. It must have been
1: that's a good way to why he didn't Um, want to
2: talk about it or write about it himself.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that's true, but um. And, and again, he spoke often about it, um, but not in detail.
2: Yeah. And it's like even, letting steam out of a teapot. You sort and of even have to.
1: Some of the events leading up to it that seemed kind of like turning points in his life, that if there had been somebody there to intervene, yeah, it would yeah. have gone in a different way. I mean, there one of those events he identified and spoke to me of it at two different times in his life. And it wasn't until I heard it the second time that I thought, This is when somebody could have stepped in and changed this, and it didn't
2: happen. Okay, we're gonna take a real quick break, and then we're gonna come back and finish this discussion.
0: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut.
2: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny, true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Okay, we're back. So you said that this was a story that you thought needed to be told, that you wanted to tell. But it would also be very difficult for this to be a book that argued against the death penalty
1: because um, he confessed.
2: Yeah, right, that's what I mean. Like, I mean,
1: he killed two people and he owned up to it his yeah. whole life. Um, and he would agree that there are crimes that need punishments. And he wasn't totally opposed to the death penalty. He said that there are some crimes that call for that. I had several reasons for writing this book. Um, you know, one, I wanted to tell the story of a remarkable person. Um, he always reminded me of the biblical Joseph when he was in prison. He found ways to bloom there, right? He, and he was elevated and, and became very trusted. And um, that was Carrie Dean's story. He found ways to serve people in prison. And um, I admired that. And I admired the way he had changed He had very little education, but in prison, um, he read the Bible over and over and over and over and over and over over again, and did all of these study courses. And he wrote letters to all kinds of people, all kinds of smart people, like death penalty activists on very high level and um, state senators and all kinds of people. And um, I think was self-educated. I want to tell his story I also um, wanted to reveal circumstances in in a penitentiary. Um, I believe in fair, just sentences served in humane facilities, circumstances. And that's not what a lot of people get. And I wanted to reveal that. And Nebraska has been one has been very, very excessive in its use of solitary confinement. And the Omaha World Herald in January reported that we have the fastest growing inmate population in the country. I can go on and on. Um, So I just wanted to reveal that through him, um, through his letters, he wrote a lot about solitary confinement. And then I had two other things, and these are just maybe personal issues for me. As, as a Christian, I'm very troubled by people who are very critical of Christianity and don't know anything about it. And Carrie Dean and I were very different types of Christians. He was more evangelical. <clears throat> I'm more on the progressive end of it, liberal. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there were many things we disagreed on and many things that we did agree on. And I thought it was really important to illustrate these differences because Protestantism in America at this time and place is every bit as divided as our politics. Um, and, And yet we were able to cross that divide, an evangelical and a progressive, a liberal and a Democrat, somebody with a 10th grade education, somebody with a PhD if we could be friends, anybody could. And I think that's a story that America really needs right now that we can have very nourishing friendships with people who aren't like us. Um, so that was that was an important story that I wanted to put out there about friendships and understanding that Christianity is not monolithic. Um, we tend to hear the loudest voice in the room, which is the white evangelical nationalist, and that doesn't represent me um, and many other people. So I had, once I got into the writing, it was just, there were just more and more things I wanted to do with that. But it, it started initially, I'm gonna tell the story of a remarkable person.
2: So how do you keep focused? Because those are a lot of big issues. That's a lot right? of big like, issues. Those are, like those are not uh, <clears throat> as uh, from the old movie. Like those aren't soup questions. Like those are, no. you know, those are big topics. So how do you, like, how do you see all those fitting together?
1: When I got into this book, I knew that there was, ugh, I could have <laughs> thousand That's, pages long
2: i know you that know. writer huffed the dog oh god i, I could well, still be writing brand
1: <laughs> um you know one thing i considered to do a really good job with this i probably should have interviewed the families of his victims
2: well, i was gonna get to that i was gonna
1: that that would have been too much for me yeah. there were so many things um i put all 320 letters that i had saved from him and there were probably more yeah. but those were the ones i saved I put them in a box and set that on a file cabinet. And I said, these are my perimeters. I'm gonna stay in the box. I'm gonna stay with the letters. If he didn't write about it, I'm not going to either. Because I had to do something. And these issues that I named, um, you know, we, we wrote a lot about our friendship. We wrote a lot. I have a chapter, what is death row like? That's one of the first questions I asked him in a letter. And he spent the next 20-some years answering that. Yeah. Um, The differences in Christianity, um, actually, those came out more in some of our discussions where we disagreed on things. (laughs) And um, there were some issues we just couldn't talk about. Um, He would like to pose really interesting questions, like, did God hear the prayers of the Philistines? And, hmm, I've never thought about that. And, and so there were all kinds of things that came up that gave us a chance to talk about the similarities and differences in the, the Christianity's plural that we practiced. So, um, I let him, um, kind of set the tone and and the limits on what I would work with.
2: So two more questions. Yeah. Uh, if you were going to, and I hate this is like the question that writers hate, but if you were going to classify it, is this a book about him? Is this a book about him in prison or is this a book about him and and you and the friendship and the sort of way in which that developed? You know what I mean? Like, what would that lens look like? What do you think it looks like?
1: Yes, it's all of those. Yeah, it is. I consider this. Um,
2: so this is like a um, mural. But, this is like a painting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a good question. Um, I have a couple answers. <laughs> I I call it a memoir slash biography or a biography slash yeah. memoir. Yeah. And Kerry was really clear. He said, "Don't just reveal me. I want you to reveal you too. Because if it's a story about a friendship, we both have to be there." Mm-hmm. And he said, "You can tell juicy things about me, but you have to tell juicy things yeah. about." It. Yeah. He didn't never define what that was, but yeah. so um, I bring myself into the story to highlight or clarify something about him, mm-hmm. um, like both being adult children of alcoholics. Okay, I can write about both sides of that, and yeah. that will tell that I understand a real powerful influence in his life.
2: Yeah,
1: something like that. Another thing I wrestled with in the in the actual writing, if this was going to be like a chronological narrative (laughs) or something thematic, because the letters, you know, he would touch on something in 1997 and he would tell me the rest of the story in 2017. Um, And so I decided I would do both Um, beginning of the book and the end of the book are are narrative and in between it's it's topics so i'll just read a few of those topics and a lot i let him title a lot of these chapters um what is death row like where he talks about conditions whispers and shouts that's um how he came to christianity a part of me wants to live but most of me does not um his choice to be a volunteer to not fight execution. And so I tell his story and just how he went back and forth. People would make him change his mind and then he would start fighting and and then um, he would despair and stop. And I included quite a bit of research on that phenomenon. Um, Behind the headlines, um, conditions in the prison that we only hear a little bit about in the newspaper just call me Dr. Wannabe Phil. Um, In another life, he would have been a therapist. He loved to help people with their problems. And that's, he called himself Dr. Wannabe Phil, (laughs) waiting for some sort of outcome. Um, Would the death penalty be outlawed in Nebraska? Would there be legal drugs for his execution? All of these things that he was just waiting, waiting. So the Probably most of the book is thematic, but within that, there are stories.
2: (laughs) I I laughed when you said, should I do narrative or my writing partner and I do nonfiction and every, every project you're literally will have fights like it needs to be chronological and it's like but that's not how the story's told and I'm like but that's how it happened like. And people love chronology.
1: It's comfortable and easy to follow. And
2: it's how we live. Like everything in our life has a chronology to it. And like, but sometimes you know you get that writer and you're like, "Well, I need a regression here. Like this actually, this actually does need an aside or a flashback. Like this isn't just a, I'm not just doing this to show off I can do it. Like this is going to make this make sense. But that's it. That is a hard. It's that's I think one of the fights as a nonfiction writer is like, what is the best way? to sort of shape this because you're, you know, you know, you're not taking every event you're taking selective events and then putting a meaning on top of them so that you can tell a story. It's why we always call what we do a story of not the story Mm -hmm. of. You you can look at those little dots and if somebody else looks at them with a different magnifying glass, they'll see a different story there.
1: Or even these letters, I could have pulled different excerpts and told a different story about him.
2: I'm sure. Uh, So when you do like as someone who writes nonfiction you just i know people are not always going to they're not always going to want to hear it or be able to hear it did you worry that oh. like vic- the the families of the victims friends pe- like that had oh, to yeah. be huge yeah that had to weigh on you it probably still weighs on you
1: yeah it's it's huge um and an earlier ver- version of this book oh god i probably would have been sued by a lot of people um just, I just, he talked so much about his family and so much about people on death row. And um, one of the issues we talked about is what can I say about people? And he said, um, you can say anything you want. He said, run it past me, but you can say anything you want, but he was killed. So I couldn't check a lot of this with him. Um, I am in touch with a younger brother of his and, and his wife. And we've talked about some things. Um, what sensitivities Carrie Dean is from a very, very large family. So we talked about that, the people on death row, I told him I would um, only write in detail about people who were already dead. I yeah. would not write about anyone living, even though I badly wanted to. Um, I just, all these men have appeals. I'm just not going to go there. I would say he had a birthday dinner with food from the commissary with these three men, something like that. Yeah. Um, But I would not go into any detail. His family, I ended up pulling the names of everybody I could, um, except for three brothers. And I had two attorneys read this.
0: But
2: what about the victims and the, and, and victims advocates and not, not did you name them, but like, was there a concern that you're like, look, I'm telling a story about this person who you think, I mean, they went through this transformation, right. And like, right. there is a humanity to that. And this is, I think the pull that all of us have, which is that is great that you did that, but you also did this other thing. And how do I, as a person, how do I rectify? You know what I mean? Like, how do I rectify that to say you get to change, but also you got to carry that ball with you?
1: Well, okay. What I did in the book, um, I open with a prologue and this is a couple of pages where I recount the murders in the most detached and distant sure. way I can. And it's, they went into this restaurant. They, uh, two cab drivers were killed and called for a cab and just yeah. And, and what the sentence was. Um, I, I wanted to start with that because when I told people what I was working on, the first thing they would ask, the first thing anybody asked, what do you do? And I, I'm going to answer that right away.
2: oh interesting
1: And then, um, chapter three is called the rest of the story. And what I did, um, August of the murders, what he did, what the victims were doing, what I was doing. The essay's in three parts. And the middle part about the family, um, I didn't talk to any of them. Um, I had, he gave me letters from the son of one of the victims. I would love to have used that, but I didn't. And then I was in contact with the grandson of another victim. Wow! But um, I, I took this Purely from newspaper accounts, it is heavily documented. Um, the family members were interviewed many times over the years, and I was able to piece together a story um, that showed just how awful this was for them.
2: Yeah.
1: And then um, at the end, I quote from his letters about the murders. So, I I hope That's that right. I have given them adequate coverage. Yeah. Because they are victims and um their story has to be told it has to be acknowledged and um yeah what happened to them was absolutely awful and so i tried to do justice um but to have interviewed them would have taken the book in a completely different place and i just couldn't do it
2: well and i mean as look as a former journalist too You also think like, well, do I even have the right? I mean, you know, part of you thinks like, well, I should give them the right to refuse. But also there's that other part, the human part where you're like, I don't know if I'd want to email from somebody who I don't know that's writing a book that wants to, again, not a soup question, right? Like, tell me what your life has been like. That's like, that's a hard thing to do. Like, um, Um,
1: So keeping it on the newspaper and, and just documenting and, you know, years worth of interviews with them. Um, I, I think I was able to give the, the point I wanted the readers to know that as, as much as I loved this friend of mine, he had caused a horrible tragedy for many people. And I wanted to tell enough of the story that the reader would know that and not think I was shying away from it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to, right? Like, otherwise it doesn't feel like an actual portrait of who he is. That's right. Like, and that's, yeah. the, that was what I guess the point of the question was, was like, we both have to allow people and as humans, we want people to have redemption, right? We want them to be able to change and grow over life. And we always tell people like, just look forward, Keep, you know, don't think about the past, but the reality is for a lot of us, whether it's a transgression like that or other transgressions where we've hurt people like that ball does kind of have to follow you you don't just get to say well i'm this way now and so nothing else matters otherwise to me the journey doesn't matter right the journey is can you do it with the ball behind you like that's the journey
1: and then at the execution um i mentioned the families yeah and even imagine what he might have thought um one one of the two people cab drivers he killed in the process okay I quit I I don't know those may have been his last words and I when Carrie was on the table getting the lethal injection like did that cross his mind okay I quit um I just wanted to keep the the victims present there in some way and um and hearing that they did not want to be witnesses to this they didn't want to be there with Carrie's family and friends
2: Well, there you have it. That was Lisa Knopp. The book from your friend, Carrie Dean. It's out now. I'm telling you, man, this is a good first one of these. And I hope that it's the first of many like this, because there's just a lot of stuff out there that we need to carve space out in our lives, to think about, to talk about. Um, And I know it always helps ground me back in reality. It's very easy to float through life. And sometimes I guess maybe you need that, but it's also good to have those moments where you can breathe and go, oh yeah, like there's this other stuff going on and we need to really dig into it. And it's such a complex and complicated story. And I have feelings about it, right? Like I have feelings about whether the story should be told or not or whatever, but those are mine. And I'm really happy that uh, Lisa both Wrote the book and came on the show to talk about it because uh, that's a gift, man. That's a gift when people create and do things and make you think. I hope you are surrounded by that kind of stuff every day. And if not, I hope you keep popping in the bunker. Listen to us and I hope we can do that for you. Before we get out of here, a couple reminders. Uh, if you like what you heard, man, tell us. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Head over to the Writer's Jam Facebook page and leave us a review. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget, we are part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff on our network. There's 12 other shows, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With Podcast, with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. You can get commercial-free episodes and early episodes either by subscribing to our Apple Podcast channel or the Patreon channel. You can find both of them at theWritersJam.com. And don't forget, uh, our jam, the Downtown Writers Jam, comes out every Wednesday. That's our hour-long program. It's a deep dive into the lives of writers. It's always a lot of fun. And After Party and Jam Sessions comes out on Mondays and Fridays. It's all on the same channel. So the best way not to miss anything we do, subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast right now. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writers Jam. Until the next time. I will see you around the internet.
0: And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday.